The Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron Joel. G'day, mob. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. Wow, I just got finished uh, interviewing my friend Mark Jones. You're about to hear a really interesting take on things from a really, really interesting chap. Mark Jones is a filmmaker who lives in Broome, Western Australia. He's been living and working extensively in the Kimberley region of Western Australia for 27 years. It started out as a camera operator with the adventure filmmaker Malcolm Douglas that most Australians will know of. His curiosity led him into the edit suite and then into developing stories and creating films with deep underlying messages that reflect his very special part of the world, the Kimberley. He's collaborated with some of the greats in Australian film and television over the years and has branched out into fixing and producing for some of the larger international TV broadcasters, including BBC UK, NHK in Japan and others. He has turned his filmmaking skills in a really interesting direction, exploring Indigenous cultures and connection to country and to spirit, which is exactly what this podcast is about, in essence. So he was a perfect match, a match made in heaven. (laughs) Um, We discuss Mark's trip to South America and his experience of sitting numerous ayahuasca ceremonies and the effect that that had on his life, how that changed him, his connection to Australia, the country, the planet at large and indigenous Australians. I met Mark a few years ago, actually at the home of next week's guest, um, John Butler, musician. And he, Mark, was sitting around one evening around the fire and Mark was talking just sharing his stories, sharing his take on Indigenous Australian mythology and history, as has been told, taught to him by Indigenous Australian community members up in his home region of the Kimberley. And I was so enthralled by what he was saying, my, my body started buzzing, this energy started moving through my body, and, and I all but fainted. I actually had to excuse myself, get off my chair and lay down on the ground as my body was shaking. It was such just a potent energy running through my body in response to what he was saying. It just resonated with me so strongly. And we've been mates ever since. His work as a filmmaker protecting country up north, in particular the Fitzroy River. We talk about the Younger Dryas period, magnetic pole shifts, Uh, megafauna extinctions, mnemonics, ancient Egypt, psychedelics. This is a really interesting chat. So again, without further ado, my mate, Mark Jones. Mark Jones, welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast. How do you do today? Very well, thanks, mate. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been watching with bated breath as your series takes flight. Um, yeah, thank, I'm really enjoying the process. I should have done it years ago. I kind of feel a bit indulgent just getting to ask interesting people the questions that I'm actually interested in in asking. It's a, it's a little bit like filmmaking. You uh, Eventually you start hanging around with, say, lots of scientists and Indigenous folks and, and all sorts of stuff, and you actually, I find myself, I'm learning all the time. That's, that's why I love doing what I do. 
Yeah, you seem to have a pretty rich experience when you're out in the field, don't you? Like, that's the impression I get, the photos you send back and the stories you tell. I'm pretty lucky because I'm old enough now to be able to pick and choose the gigs that I get. And, you know, after you've been doing it, I've been making films now for nearly 30 years and you meet some pretty interesting people around the globe and, uh, you know, you start hanging out with a few and, yeah, it leads to rich experiences, which is, you know, at the end of the day, that's what I'm after in this lifetime. Me too, my friend. That's exactly what I'm after. When did you start? I mean, you you were shooting for old Malcolm Douglas once upon a time. Was that your introduction to that field? Yeah, it's funny. I just went into his Crocodile Park for the first time in nine years, two days ago. His son's back in town, so that was a walk down memory lane. I crashed into Broome in March 1992. I just finished a degree down in um, Perth at UWA and the last thing I wanted to do was work in anthropology and human physiology. I was looking for some adventure. I ran out of money at the Carnarvon Hotel halfway up here and had to bludge the rest of the drive with a mate of mine, had to jump straight into work here. My sister was working at the Crocodile Park, which was owned by uh, Malcolm Douglas, who I'd heard of. I didn't, you know, certainly like everybody else, I'd watched him as I grew up. And um, I met him, I met him about six days after I started. And, uh, yeah, it was the start of a, a relationship that lasted for nearly 20 years and passed away in 2010. Yeah. And for those who are listening and, and aren't aware, probably for those outside of Australia, because I dare say most Australians will know who we're talking about, Malcolm Douglas was a, a filmmaker or a documentarian in, in sorts, but he was kind of like the precursor to Steve Irwin and out in the countryside going deep country and just fi filming, making films of him doing what he did. Yeah, he started, he made his first film in 1967. So he was one of the first, he was a, he was a pioneer and he died actually editing his 50th film, which is, it's an incredible archive, really, and thousands of hours of raw tape, which haven't been digitised, actually. I was just talking to his son about it. We need to digitise it before uh, it gets eaten by all the rats. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be a mean job in, in and of itself. So you that was when you, you picked up a camera then, did you? Was that your... You, you just kind of stumbled into it? Just stumbled into it. I didn't even know how to turn a camera on at the uh, tender age of 22. Um, I remember studying it at high school and enjoying it but never took to it but uh, I was working in the filth with crocodiles for a year or so collecting eggs and doing tours and uh, you know getting pretty rambunctious uh, but I kept seeing these very good looking roosters walking in with uh, khaki shirts and short haircuts and hanging off them and I thought that's what I want to do. Yeah, oh, I, I kept, when they left town, I badgered Malcolm to uh, take me on one of his trips and he said, well, you got no experience. And uh, I actually used a line that he used on me and I said, well, neither did you. And uh, he capitulated when Mitch Kelly, his, his then cameraman, got malaria. And uh, so I got an, in, uh, an invite and we did six weeks along the Kimberley Coast in a boat with a dog and we made what was to be my first film, which was a three one-hour 
part series called The Kimberley Adventure and uh, I fell in love with camera and I fell in love with the Kimberley and the original culture. It's pretty easy to fall in love with the Kimberley. So you, yeah. you didn't grow up in the Kimberley. I remember you telling you were born in Oxford of all places, weren't you? I was born on the grounds of Oxford University. So that. So how do how do you get from Oxford University to Broome? Give us the in betweens. Kind of like Tony Abbott's and my paths are very similar. Um, yeah. Uh, well, we're all Indigenous, I believe, and so it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, I've learnt with the Indigenous culture up here that where your spirit is born, where it comes through the portal is where it leaves. And so I would imagine that uh, my spirit will actually have to go back through the grounds of Oxford University. So I've actually asked my wife to uh, put whatever remains of me left, go and bury it in a, in a rose garden near the Radcliffe Hospital at, at Oxford. Um, my folks were some of the last 10 pound palms we came over in 1971. Right. I was 18 months old. Uh, mm. Baby, I was a baby and my brother was even younger. He was nine months, 10 months younger than me, 11 months younger. Uh, and so, yeah, my folks went through that traditional English immigrant pathway. Um, they uh, built a house on the outskirts of Perth in those days, which was Morley. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually dad started working in the mining industry, which was starting to grow in the Pilbara in the 70s. And he got a transfer to a little place called Robin, which um, is quite a tragic town, really. It's where they mustered five tribes of Aboriginal people in the late 1800s into the one place and called it a town. And so, and we lived there for three and a half years in the late 70s, right up till 1981. And, uh, and that was formative. My best mate was an Aboriginal kid. Uh, and I used to knock around with him and his family and we'd go camping at the Burrup Peninsula before there was a gas plant there. And mm. you know, I started hearing all the old stories then. So that was really important. And then we went back to Perth. We lived in the hills of Perth for a decade or so. I went to school there. and and university, and, but I'd always been touched by the North after that experience as a kid. So I was pretty keen to get back up here as soon as I could make my own decision. So I lobbed back up here. Oh, I lobbed into Broome, into the Kimberley in uh, 92. So I was 22 years old. And it's a, we used to come on holidays to Broome. I remember loving it as a kid. So um, yeah. I was quite familiar with it. What did you say you studied at uni? I did a science degree. So physiology, yeah. human physiology and human movement on one side and I did a minor in anthropology. Um, oh, that came in handy, I guess. Yeah, well, it was funny because I gravitated towards it because I was interested in it, but I never actually saw it as being a career pathway or anything like that. But I, right. it certainly gave me the grounding for then getting into ethnographic film and everything that I kind of do these days. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting how coincidental that was. Um. So how long did you spend tagging around after Malcolm helping you making films? We had a volatile relationship, Malcolm and I. Uh, I probably had three or four or five stand-up uh, arguments with him which uh, um, uh, had me leaving <laughs> and taking off to Europe and to all sorts of places. But eventually I'd gravitate back and he'd invite me back and I'd do another film with him and everything else. I worked with him pretty much full on for the first six years, went away for a couple of years, 
came back for another five years. And then in the last sort of decade, I was in, I was certainly living up here, but we weren't working as closely together because I was off, I was off with my own career by then. I was making fishing shows and golf shows and, you know, other stuff and producing my own stuff. But, um, you know, I was still involved with him and I'd look after the Crocodile Park for him when he went away and I was actually editing. I was editing his last film when he passed away. So, right. yeah, we were, he was the official photographer at our wedding in 2005 down your way, actually, down at uh, Castle Rock down in Dunsborough. Is that where you met Will Thomas at the Crocodile Park? No, no, I know Will from the Hills. We are... Oh, right. I've known way Will since we were 13, 14 years old. Right. We lived in the same area in Darlington. He went to um, some hippie school down in Guildford and uh, I was off at the state school, which was, you know, a little bit more rough and tumble. And so that's why he's a lot more of a, a thespian than I am. Yeah, he does. For, for a bloke who's that rough around the edges, he does kind of carry himself like a thespian, doesn't he? <laughs> fro- fro- frolicking around. Um, very theatrical is our William. And uh, so... When did you head to South America? I uh, So I was heavily involved with the James Price Point campaign up here and we did a very cool story with the Australian newspaper owned by our very own Rupert Murdoch. Uh, we got to know the journalist, the environmental editor and his partner, and they came up and they ran a story up here on what was to be the smallest dolphin in the world species of yeah yeah right it's tentatively called the diminutive dolphin uh it's only about three foot long is this just speculated as a species no 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 we've actually <laughs> we actually shot 18 of them not not with a bullet but with a dart uh, with a station right. mate of mine dr simon allen who works at murdoch university he specializes in getting samples from dolphins Right. And you pop these little uh, darts into their skin and it pulls out a little bit of subcutaneous fat, which they then run through their machines over in Europe. And uh, it is scientifically a new species of dolphin and smallest dolphin. But up until that point, was it not recognised by science? Well, of course, Woodside uh, with James Price Point were doing this, um, this uh, science, marine science paper cost them $80 million and it was to be the Bible on everything science in the marine systems around Broome and the Kimberley, which would then feed in to, you know, the, the, the narrative about where to put gas plants and everything else. But, of course, right. they were manipulating the science, as often happens, and they were only allowing the planes to fly at 1,000 feet, not 500 feet, and at 1,000 feet a small dolphin looks like a mullet Mm. Um, and so the scientists that were that were recording that uh, were very sure that it was a new species, and they kept reporting it to Woodside. But Woodside said that they were juvenile bottlenose and humpback dolphins. And so they t- they asked their friend Simon Allen, my mate, um, if he could have a look. And he's he's a bit of a renegade. He's a a bit of a, a truth seeker. So he just phoned me up and said, Jonesy. Can you get hold of a plane and a boat and some money and can we go out and have a look off James Price Point? And we did. It took us a week to find the dolphins and then we spent three days with them getting samples and scientifically proved that it was not not 
straight away. But it was yeah. interesting because the Australian newspaper was with us and they reported that in their national paper and the Environment Minister at the time, Tony Burke, was able to take that article and put it on Woodside's desk and say, what the hell's going on here? And it was one of the big changes in that campaign. So to right. go back to your original question, yeah, the couple that I was working with from the Australian were talking to me about um, some projects that they were doing in Peru and some of the other experiences that they were doing with plants and everything else. I had been asking some deep questions for a, for a very long time and looking after, uh, looking under all sorts of rocks, you know, trying to find these answers in books. I was looking everywhere and uh, my ears pricked up when they started talking and uh, took me uh, 18 months to research ayahuasca and uh, the people that I was going with to feel comfortable with it. And then the following year, so that's 2013, is when I flew from Broome to Iquitos in Peru, which took me three days. And then I stayed in Peru for 40 days and 40 nights. Ah, that's a poignant period of time. Yes, well, that's, I, 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 I wanted it to be that. Um, yeah so, uh, yeah, so I lobbed in there. Um, my wife, actually, thankfully, my wife went in with me. She only stayed with five, for five days and then she went off trekking up in Machu Picchu. But I'm so glad that she did come in because she did two of the ayahuasca ceremonies at the beginning. And I reckon if she hadn't, I doubt that we'd still be married. Um, uh, but thankfully she did. And so she's completely understood the process that has gone on since then. Yeah, so you, you say that because you were you were so affected that you don't think had she not made that experience as well, she just wouldn't have understood where you had gone and who and what you'd become in the process. That's right. It completely. I mean, you hear it. You hear it all the time with everybody that does it. It completely changed me, and it completely changed the way I viewed the world. The first two years afterwards were. Um, Incredible, but also um, very confusing. You sometimes you felt like you were losing your mind because you look at the world in a very different way. And there was so there was a lot of torment going on trying to understand it, but also all this other stuff that was happening afterwards. And uh, yeah, I think if if my wife hadn't have been through it and hadn't understood it, then that would have led to much frustration from both sides. But uh, right. So that's a that's a significant integration period to call it that a couple uh, a couple of years of, yeah. of things being a bit wobbly and just getting used to the new pair of eyes that you you, yeah. you had yeah yeah and I think I think too when you've had an experience like that you see it a lot with um, people when when they've when they've had that revelation that they're after the first thing they want to do is tell everybody about it, not because of ego. In fact, it's the opposite. They want everybody else um, to go through the same profound experience that they will have. But, of course, that's not what happens. Everybody, you come back and everybody um, looks at you rather strangely and says, you know, all sorts of strange things. So I actually had to find myself actually stop talking about it because I was bringing attention to myself. So I actually did. I went inside myself 
um, for a long time, but now I've sort of processed, processed it and I'm able to vocalise what happened a lot better and also integrate it into my life. What was the core fundamental takeaway from those experiences? That the that the that we have we're split into two. We're split into spirit and ego, and we have allowed ego to take over and run run ourselves and our world. And it's ego that takes us into these dark places that we find both individually and as a group as society. The moment that you're you're shown your ego and you're you battle with your ego in that you know, um, and you realise that no longer does your ego run run you, but uh, other more powerful forces is is uh, an incredible moment. It's the moment that you realise that. You are, you do have a body that serves you for this life, and then uh, you leave that body and um, you go on more adventures. You re- you you learn about the immortality of your soul. The great the great question that humanity has always asked itself. That's a wonderful place to arrive at during an experience like that. But am I right to guess? Oh, I've never tried ayahuasca. I've I've dabbled in my fair share of psychedelics. Um, organic compounds and otherwise but ayahuasca is something i've never tried it strikes me as being a pretty damn intense experience and an intense experience amongst intense experiences that sounds like a great place to arrive at but i'm pretty damn sure that the whole journey the whole experience itself wasn't all love and light and roses there would have been some pretty challenging moments oh my god the whole thing was i remember actually getting off the plane uh, after three days sleeping in airports and then getting into Iquitos, the largest city in the world, not accessed by a road. And then we jump on this bus and it's that typical South American scene with chickens and shit everywhere. And you're driving down the road, 80, this one road about 80 kilometres out from the city and you're surrounded by the Amazon River and water and uh, and then we eventually we get to this sort of jungle setting and there's this little path and we all get out with our backpacks and these big boots and we start sloshing through the jungle to this camp that we're going to be staying at for the first two weeks. And I remember turning around to my wife and I said, in a journey of 100 miles, consider 99 halfway, which was said by Sun Tzu, the, the famous philosopher, Chinese philosopher. Here's me thinking that I'm being profound because that was the beginning of the journey and it wasn't until the very end when I realised that 99 miles was right at, right at the end. It was, it was torture. It's, it's, it's not a sane pursuit. You pay pretty good money to get over there and, you know, get through the whole thing. You pay to throw up at least a dozen, 15 times a night for the first two weeks. You, I lost 12 kilos um it physically it was absolutely exhausting spiritually it was absolutely exhausting um but it has to be the whole process has to be for you to then uh learn the lessons of it on the other side but it was torture it was torture for two years afterwards yeah it's hard work do you remember arriving back in australia after that experience i don't to be honest with you um 
Okay. No, I don't. It's very hard for me to remember that first week back. It was really, it was a really full-on experience. I remember that, but I don't remember much of it. I remember I visited Egypt and I'd done this amazing tour up and down the Nile and river cruises and visiting temples and whatnot. And it was incredible. Mm. And while I was there, I was reading this book by some people will recognize the author of Drunvalo Melchizedek, The Ancient Secret of the Flower of Life, which had just landed in my lap when I was in Egypt. And it's all about the kind of symbolist and esoteric view of Egypt. And I remember arriving, pulling up to the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau and doing this little, you know, just taking a moment's silence and a little bit of a moment to uh, set some intentions. And I said something like, uh, I was appreciating the the gravity or potential gravity of what I was about to do and walk into this building that I've always wanted to visit and that I have very strong suspicions as to its function. And I said to myself, may this experience assist me in being the purest version of myself and providing the greatest possible good to the greatest many, mm. something to that effect. And I got my ass kicked. I, like I remember the, the rest of the trip through Egypt, it was a few days and that was pleasant enough. But upon return to Australia, I entered a, a couple of years of being really disorientated and, and feeling like I was having my soul scrubbed clean with a wire brush. Mm. Now, I don't know what to attribute it to, you know, I'm not ins- insisting that it was connected, but we often we often kind of underestimate how much effort and discomfort there is in spiritual growth. You know, the whole new age scene where it's all love and light and fluff, it, it ain't like that. <laughs> I completely agree with you. Um, it, it's actually quite the opposite. It's I think anything that uh, anything to do with growth. Uh, requires a fair bit of pain and mishap. Absolutely, yeah. And I've I've experienced that. I've experienced that firsthand. Yeah, it took me it took me a long time to actually um, to really work through what I'd been through, and and then to actually then find my place back in society and start navigating it and and everything else, and also using what I learned. Um, you know, for my own for my own benefit yeah. for this for this for this life. Yeah, because I mean, there, some people go to South America, or indeed, it's moved around the world now. Ayahuasca. I was lucky enough to. I was in California, staying with a dear friend of mine who's an anthropologist, and her husband was doctor to the stars in um, the Hollywood Hills. And he said, "Jump in the car. I'm going to take you somewhere interesting." We zoomed off up into Topanga Valley to this kind of mansion built into the hill. And there was, you know, 30, 40, 50 people there in this, the big living room entrance hall thing of this, this mansion. And it was the North American ayahuasca practitioners get together. I, don't, I can't remember what the name of the, the society was, but you know, that was what they did. And I believe it was the first time they had ever all gotten together. And there were all these kind of gurus of the scene sitting around taking turns talking and they were wrapping it up. And there was a bit of a, a murmuring from the back and then someone comes forward, says, can we just take a minute now? There's someone who wants to say something. And this guy in English announces that there's this, this, this young man 
from like deep Amazon, from the border of Peru and Brazil who had come there. He'd been sent there, not invited. No one knew he was arriving, but he'd been sent there to speak to them. And it's an amazing looking individual. He was only about, you know, four foot, five, five foot, and just the most incredible bone structure and skin. He proceeded to speak in uh, Portuguese to this guy who translated. And ostensibly he was saying, hello, my name is so-and-so, and I come from the, the border of Peru and, and Brazil, and we call that, my people call ourselves the people who are still true to reality. And we've been working with Mother Ayahuasca since the beginning of time, and I'm here to assist in the dissemination of her medicine throughout the world right now because the modern world has lost its connection to soul and to spirit. I, I actually, uh, so that the, the couple that I actually met with the dolphin who uh, was my introduction to ayahuasca, uh, it was quite strange actually because we'd, we'd, we'd finished the adventure looking for the dolphin and then that, it was their last night and we took them to a local beach here. It's a women's beach, very significant beach, Seven Sisters story. Mm -hmm. And we were down there just saying our goodbyes and, uh, and the woman, um, journalist's partner, came up to me and she said, Mark, this is going to sound very strange. Um, we don't know each other super well, but I've been, I've been pointed to come here and meet you and I have, I have been told to tell you to keep your message clear. Mm. And... Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I've grown up in the country, I'm a bit of a country boy, so those sorts of things, you know, I usually my ears prick up and I start getting a bit sus and, and everything else and, and I didn't really know what she meant by it. I did ask her, she said she couldn't explain uh, and I reckon it took me, I reckon it took me four years after Peru to actually then start to understand what she was saying to me then. Um, I think profound things happen around those very, very ancient ceremonies, especially I hear a lot of the ayahuasca ceremonies that are done in, you know, the cities and everything else and that the, the, uh, the person that administers it, usually a Western shaman, um, they become the hero of the, of the ceremonies and a lot of people that are doing the ceremonies with these Western shamans actually have this adoration, a bit like a cult. Yeah. And I often ask um, the people that have done it, I said, is there any mention of trees in the ceremony? Is there any mention in the songs about the trees? Did the shamans talk about the trees? Anything? And they all say no. And as soon as they say that, then I know that uh, it's, it's being run by charlatans and not shamans because I was very fortunate because I went into the jungles of the Pakaya Samiria National Park for two and a half weeks and we lived actually in the jungle. We had to cut the jungle with machetes. We had pink river dolphins going past us every day. Wow. We had uh, howler monkeys waking us up in the morning. It was, it was like a Tarzan movie and we lived in that jungle in amongst those trees doing those ceremonies and told the Dreamtime stories of those ceremonies by the Shipibo people, proper, proper um, countrymen. So I was very, very lucky to have the authentic experience, which I'm told does not happen very often. 
I think there is something to what this young Peruvian man said in that ayahuasca is being disseminated around the planet as a medicine. It is time for that. In saying that, though, I don't know if I would partake of it outside of its home ground. That's the same. I, I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't take it outside of where the plant grows. And it's the same with any of those plants. To be honest with you, I, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm pretty loyal to where those plants are and the ceremonies because it's all intertwined. Yeah. It's it, you take those plants, then the master trees actually are the conveners of the ceremony and take you on these journeys mm. of, of insight. I, I actually planted uh, a vine, the Banisteriopsis capi, the other day in Perth. It has what a friend's place, a strange horticultural job in a medicinal garden, but that's another story. So, and, and we actually have, I mean, in terms of the actual brew of ayahuasca, that's a, a DMT-rich plant substance, which is then mixed with an MAO inhibitor which allows it to be digested in the stomach and not broken down and reuptaken too quickly. So, and we have them in Australia. There, there are actually, there are, I think it's a case you're a cuminata. Forgive me, I might, this might be slightly off, but I believe Acacia cuminata, which is a West Australian species of Acacia, is the, the highest concentration of and purest forms of alkaloid, DMT alkaloids in, known in the plant kingdom. Any of the plants that you see on the state logos are powerful. I think any of the symbolism that you see with the laurel leaves in Roman um, symbolism, all of the fleur de lis with France, all of those plants that were lionised, uh, if you don't have to do too much scratching to see that they were ceremonial plants previously, that then, like everything else, would turn into symbols yeah. and uh, the symbols became adored. Yeah. I, think, I think of two things when I hear you say that. One is that plants are women's law something that we know very little about. I think uh, you'll find in the deep stories that men did um, cover the recipes of certain plants and you'll find around Australia. And in fact, just I go for a bushwalk this afternoon and I walk past this, uh, we call it strangler vine. It's one of those June vines. Mm -hmm. Um, and that flower was very important in certain ceremonies. And in the deep story, the man strangles the woman with her vine. And, you know, the, the woman, the plant and the serpent, those reoccurring themes are in all creation stories. Um, the second thing is that there is a deep knowledge about the plants, but it's the stories and the poetry that we don't understand. So, you know, that film that um, we just saw of mine the other day and the, the magic modular tree. Yeah. In the deep stories, when you get to certain uh, initiate levels, you'll find that that tree isn't just a tree that's powerful and can, you know, has painkillers in it. You'll actually start to find that if you prepare that tree in a certain way, then you can go on the visions which William Bull did in the film. So in these deep stories, it can tell you how to prepare the plants and uh, go on these vision quests. And the third thing is, uh, again, another deep story, the emu and the plum, which is painted all through the Kimberley here, deep story, and that goes all the way to Victoria, the emu and the plum story. And its symbolism actually uh, is probably on Gobekli Tepe and a few other places. That story is about a certain plum called Galani, which here means the tree of life, and in Hebrew also means 
the tree of life. And if you wait until the first lightning storm with the release of the liberation of nitrogen and all those goodies, that fires up that tree, the Galani tree, and that's when the people go in and they harvest that plum. It's a certain plum. Right. And then they dry that plum out and then they crush it up into a great big round ball or pulp. And then they go and put that into the cave and then they come back a year later and like ergot, mm. it has films of fungus and things that we don't know, we don't even know. Right. And so right. there's some really interesting scientific work being done by the rock art dating team that I'm following that are finding these glazes on the um, rock surfaces in the caves and they those glazes are full of, calcium oxalate, which is what your mate Brian Malcheski, is it? The guy that did the... Brian Muraresk. Yeah, he talks about calcium oxalates in the yeah. uh, in the vases and everything yeah. and at Go Black and Tepe, yeah. um, which are plant resins. And it's the same. We're finding that we have glazes here that have these plant resins from things that were left for a period of time and then used in the ceremony. A fermentation process. That's right, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I think we've 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 got a lot to learn here, and we actually have to have ears our ears attuned so we can actually start to find out the recipes that they did use here. Also in the Kimberley, yeah. Out of the hundreds of thousands of motifs um, that we have here, twenty eight percent of them are plant motifs, and all of those plant motifs are the grasses and the seeds that were grounded for fermentation the lily bulbs, all of them were full of uh, alkaloids and DMTs that were used. Mm. So then you start to realise that they might not have been having an ayahuasca ceremony, but they were living in a, com uh, a, a, com a, a continual chemical relationship yeah. with plants and the things that they were consuming. And the animals were plant eaters that they were consuming as well, and they coveted the livers of the kangaroo, the emu, um, the turtle, the dugong who ate the seagrasses full of DMT and oh. it was the liver that was full of the chemistry as well. So, really? And that's when you could have dreams of being that dugong because you are actually literally taking on these beautiful cocktails of chemicals that we can't eat ourselves or consume ourselves. We need another animal to do it for us, yeah. That's fascinating. It reminds me of the, the stories of the... Uh the Siberian and Laplander, the shamans of the, the boreal peoples up in the north, that they would they would watch the reindeer eat the Amanita muscaria right. and then watch where, where the reindeers piss and then go eat the yellow snow. That, well, that's, that's exactly right. There's a great book called Intoxication which uh, documents 400 species of animals that seek out uh, intoxication. And I would suggest just in my anecdotal watching of the world go by, all the beetles that come in in the first rains of the wet season, they are all smashing all the fermenting fruits and everything else and flying into our houses and flying into us in this yeah. cocktail-induced state. I'd say that it's uh, something that happens a lot and I'd say that, it. well, what's interesting in my ayahuasca experience I always knew I would drink and then I'd go into this meditation and then I knew that I was going into the visions because the first thing that land that happened was a dragonfly would land on my shoulder and the stories around insects and 
fermenting plants and the Lord of the Flies and you know all of these things. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, I think that there was a fair bit of ceremonial stuff going on, not just with human beings. I, I think it happens right throughout the animal kingdom. Really, that's bloody interesting as well. Well, we, I was shown I was shown ayahuasca vines in the jungle, which were teeth cleaning stations of the jaguar, which of course is um, um, front and center, uh, center in any of the ayahuasca ceremonies. You always see the jaguars. You, you see all sorts of things, but jaguars are always, they're highly, all the cats are highly spiritual animals. They clean their teeth mm. on the ayahuasca vines. Mm. They, are, they are consuming, now whether they're, they're taking it with the inhibitor and everything else, I don't know, but there is the the tribal people say that the that the jaguar consumes ayahuasca, wow. and I actually saw the teeth cleaning stations on the vine. So, yeah, yeah I, th I think there's a fair bit of it going on. I once watched a fox eat an Amanita muscaria mushroom wow. in the pine forest in Margaret River, sitting there silently and. I had a brief moment of like tension going, oh my God, I've never wanted to film anything more in my life. But if I pull my phone out of my pocket, it's over. So I was just like, I can, I can either document this or I can just sit there and watch it. And I chose the latter, yeah. but um, yeah. it would have been a great little bit of footage. Absolutely. Today's episode of the Octarine Tree is brought to you by Facebook. Should be working, but instead Facebook. Traffic lights have turned red, Facebook. Got five minutes, take a shit, Facebook. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. 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 So did you find that your relationship to country had changed upon your return? Were you seeing country or feeling it differently? I, well, I always had a pull towards it, obviously. I always was very sympathetic to it. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd or, I was already starting to receive a lot of information um, 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 back then. But I think, I think there was a block. When I look back on it now, there was a block because I had not had that experience. And so uh, I was willing it. I was willing myself to, uh, you know, have this deep understanding, but I think it wasn't until I'd done the plant ceremonies that I then completely looked at everything differently, whether it was the earth, whether it was the things that lived on the earth, whether it was my relationships, you know, all those sorts of things. So I think by having that experience coming back, uh, what happened was I was able to come back into the, the Indigenous cultures I lived with here, I was able to come back and start asking the right questions. And when you ask the right questions, then you get um, the answers that you're looking for. If you ask daft questions, you don't get an answer. Yeah, okay. That's what I, that's what I found. I was able to go back to the old men and the old women that I knew and I said to them, I've had this experience and this is what happened to me. And they understood it because they had lived uh, with it. And so then they were able to then guide me. And I was shown so much more after the experience. Yeah, that's yeah. okay. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned a little earlier your film, The Serpent's Tale, that I was lucky enough to see the other night. I was at the opening in Perth, which was uh, amazing. 
and you were joined by a, a panel of Indigenous Australians, a couple from the Perth area and a whole bunch that had come down from the Kimberley. Would you sp- speak for a moment to the to the premise of that film? Because that's re- a really important one regarding the Fitzroy. Yeah, so um, it's, it's really, it's the second film that I've done. They're just very small films done on very small budgets, but they're campaign films, but... They're not the traditional campaign film where a lefty is hoisting up their flag saying, stop this. Uh, Rather than do that and make a film that just attracts, you know, uh, people that already believe in it, I was interested in making a positive film uh, about the creation stories of the six tribes that live along the river and shine a light on something that is really little understood in our country. and the, the ties that the uh, Aboriginal people have to those stories. And that if you stop telling those stories, then you lose your culture. And if you lose your culture, you're nothing. And we can see that. We can see that in Aboriginal communities and towns and cities all over Australia. I don't need to go into that story. So uh, I was approached nearly three years ago, actually. It was just before my mum died. It was pretty hectic time. It was a really hectic time. It was a hell of a journey. I was approached to make a, a, a film on the origin stories of the Fitzroy River. And I said, well, you know, am I the right person? I'm a white fella for a start. And, um, uh, but the, 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 the council, who those elders were, the Matawara Council, insisted that I make the film. Um, and then so I started to ask, you know, about the stories of the river and I was getting all of these disparate stories which I was trying to, understand but the the central themes kept coming through the the serpent um the magical tree and the spring which is laced even through our western yeah uh, creation stories which i've been fascinated with since i came back from peru i had no inclination towards reading the bible or the torah or the quran or any of those things Mm. pre Peru, since I've come back, I have ravenously read everything and I start to see that the symbolism that are in the creation stories of religion are very uh, similar to the symbols uh, that are connected to Indigenous cultures around the world, which are much, much older. But in the Indigenous cultures, those symbols are seen as being positive, powerful, good things, whereas in Christianity, for example, the serpent, the tree and the spring are demonised and that becomes the foundation stone, if you like, for Western civilization. So I'm yeah. really interested in uh, those old stories and how this new story has been flipped on its head and how Indigenous people then became so easily conned by religion because they were familiar with the symbols. Yeah, I mean, the, the Christianity is a classic example of adopting pagan Pregnant symbols. That's what I was attracted to. Sorry, uh, that's what I was attracted to was telling a story about those early symbols, um, but, you know, in a positive way to make people that watch the film go, I wonder why the serpent is uh, good in Aboriginal culture but is a devil in Christianity. Well, because you hear like our culture, uh, modern industrialised culture is the term I usually go to, in industrialised culture, and its immediate um, immediate predecessing forms, the repti- reptiles, and the, to be reptilian is 
to be considered cold and um, lacking feeling and calculating and almost machine-like. But you find the serpent in particular in many non-industrialised cultures, it's almost maternal. The serpent is, it, it is immortality. And you also learn that when you go into Peru and, and do the work, the ayahuasca work with the Shipibo, where you are actually visited by serpents. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, all of the mythology around Jonah being swallowed by a whale, a whale used to be a worm, W-Y-N-M-R-H, which translates to serpent. Um, you, in all of the deep stories, um, you'll hear of these characters that are swallowed by mm -hmm. whales, serpents and dragons. Well, that's, that's uh, again, that's what happens to you in these plant ceremonies. If it's the right plant, the serpent comes to you, which, again, is, is in, all the, in all the symbolism around the world, but the serpent comes to you and, and then eventually it swallows you and you go on this journey. You, you are taken to be shown you know, the, the, that journey. And um, uh, actually even Serpent's Tale, William Bull, when he first, it wasn't in the film, I was asked to leave it out, but in the film, uh, in the story, William Bull actually is swallowed by the serpent uh, when he goes on his vision quest and creates the Fitzroy River. So, you know, that, that, that and when, when you're swallowed by the serpent, when you're, when they're uh, taken by the whale and everything else, that is when you realise that uh, you live in a mortal body, body, but your soul is immortal and you understand uh, what immortality is. Mm. <sighs> okay. Um, <laughs> hey, um, are you able to talk about your other project that's in the works? That's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so... We're very excited. Uh, this started five years ago. Um, a film, the working title is called Stories in Stone, and it's about all of these things that we're talking about. It's about symbolism. It's about ancient rock art here. It's about, uh, it's about this being um, completely unique in the planet because not only do we have the largest art galleries in situ in the world, but we also have people still alive and ethnographies that have stories attached to that artwork. And so we're able to translate a lot of what the art is telling us. And if you actually can break down the beautiful poetic way that it's told, and translate it into more of a pragmatic scientific language for a greater audience, you can actually start to see that uh, human prehistory and its art is defined by a great climactic upheaval. Mm -hmm. um, and when you start to realise that that's what's going on here, then you can take that key and you can take it to other places around the world. So. Uh, we'll, we visit Stonehenge with Dr. Lynn Kelly, who's written The Memory Code. Yeah. We'll go to Brittany. We'll go to Serpent Hill in Ohio. We'll go to Peru. You know, we'll go to all of these places and we'll look at serpent imagery and we'll look at the tree iconography and, and you know, the cenotes in, um, in Chichen Itza in Mexico and, you know, all of that. And we'll be able to show that the stories that were told here were the same stories that were told in other parts of the world way back when and then their story slowly gets bastardized as agriculture sweeps through um 
I know that uh, it's probably a, a point of debate here in this nation, but we really are the only nation or the only land, um, um, the only country that never absorbed agriculture like agriculture is practiced with canals and clearing land and planting things in a row. Yeah. It was actively resisted here, which means that the original stories then were able to live um, very, very long because there wasn't the warfare that comes with all of those byproducts from agriculture. That's very interesting. I could, we could spend an hour talking about that alone. I've got a deep interest in that. Um, this, this concept of it, I've long thought to myself and others have said that we're, we are an amnesiac species. We don't know who we are. Yeah. We've forgotten who we are. Some people will claim it's by design, you know, a greater kind of cosmological design. Others suggest that there was at least one cataclysm rendering us a traumatised species and instead of just being able to live and live well, and function as we are designed or meant to, or you know, ideally could be, we're actually dealing with these traumas constantly. That, that and traumas like deep racial, genetic, cultural-wide, species-wide trauma, that is bad enough in and of itself. But the fact that we actually aren't aware that it's there, we're not even we don't even recognise this forgetting that's occurred. And it, it, it feels to me like yeah. all of the things I've been interested in personally, you know, history, anthropology, you know, the occult, theology, cosmology, all of it, I feel like in my experience, it's me being pulled toward a greater understanding of a particular story. Yeah. And it's a really bloody important one. In fact, I, as grandiose and as it sounds, it I can't think of a more important story. Yeah. And it, it feels like now, like we're getting somewhere, you know, it feels like the, there are piece, puzzle pieces that are slowly falling into the place now. Yeah. Um, I think, I think uh, there's, there's lots of breadcrumbs. Mm. And, uh, and I think that if we listen to the old stories uh, here, that, the oldest story uh, thus far proven uh, by Professor Dwayne Hamaka, geomorphologist, is 37,500-year-old story in Victoria. There's speculation that Seven Sisters story, which you and I have talked about a lot, mm -hmm. um, there's speculation that story is much, much older. I'd probably argue that, um, but that's a long conversation. Um, I, I would suggest it's more around that forty to 45,000-year range which um, um, we were talking about the other day with what was going on with the magnetic yeah the recent recent um, article that was put out suggesting that around 42,000 years ago there was a pole shift yeah so I think I think if you actually have the ability to be able to go back and look at those old stories and start to disseminate those old stories is pretty interesting but I also think it's really interesting when you actually look at some of the old stories in our creation story for example the flood story and Noah yeah the first thing that Noah does after uh, uh, after his Ark rests on Mount Sinai in the Taurus Mountains. Mm -hmm. uh, the first thing he does is he plants a vine. Mm. And in that story it says, 
in that story, it says that he plants a vine and then he becomes drunk. Mm. And of course, we think of that in our minds as he planted a grapevine, he made some wine and he just got he gets pissed. pissed. That's <laughs> actually not what it's about. It's about him bringing back a very uh, sacred plant on a great voyage in a thing called an ark, which is what the new ark also had. It had some very important plants in it as well. And the first act that he does is to plant that vine. And then it specifically says he gets naked, which of course is what indigenous cultures mm. uh, were doing all of the time. And yeah. he gets drunk and then Ham, his son, the first thing he does is embarrassed by his father and he dresses him. And it's that story, that those couple of sentences are so important because it gives you an idea of how Noah thought that to go back to the old culture with the vine and that ceremony was what humanity needed to do after the flood. Mm. But it was corrected by his son and they went back, straight back into the corrupted ways mm. and, and it was on for young and old. So I think there's, uh, there's, a, lot of, um, there's a lot of the pieces of the jigsaw in the old, even in the old Western stories, I am. Uh, I love Gilgamesh. Yeah. You've heard me talking about. Yeah. Uh, I, I love Gilgamesh, and in Gilgamesh, um, there's so many important clues in there, and 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 ultimately, Gilgamesh is denied the plant of life. It was taken back by the serpent in a spring, uh, and he was denied that plant. Therefore, he was denied immortality, and therefore. Uh, you, we are mortal beings. I can't remember exactly word for word what he says, but he says we are mortal beings and we're here to fill our boots, which has been the mantra ever since we have become mortal beings 11,600 years ago when we decided to leave our relationship with nature and those plant ceremonies uh, and everything else that some mobs are still doing, but they're very few and far between and they've been marginalised. But I think you're right. I think we're looking... We're now looking backwards to try and understand who we are as as human beings because it's sure as hell not driving around electric cars in the orbit of the Earth. Yeah, no, I, I, I've said before that I have a strong suspicion that the majority of the pathologies that we we experience as a species, whether the psychic, psychological, emotional, and even physical, uh, have their root in a lack of meaningful connection to country and to spirit oh and yeah i mean that's that's vague that's a vague vague thing to say but i believe it yeah no um oh, well i believe i believe that as well i think i i personally think that adam and eve weren't the first human beings i believe that they were the last human beings yeah they were the last human beings that were indigenous that uh, were allowed to enjoy a plant ceremony that is still enjoyed um, today it's a plant that's been it's a plant ceremony that's probably been going on for hundreds of thousands of years yeah i would suggest it's probably the reason why our brains have increased in size and faculty because of the chemistry that's going on with the alchemy as we were heating plants and boiling plants and understanding how to uh manipulate the pharmacology mm. the old stoned ape theory uh, and i think that uh I think that something happens 12,800 years ago. Yeah, I think something happens and I think most of humanity gets wiped out 
in the Northern Hemisphere 12,800 years ago, which creates that, um, that amnesia that you're talking about. And I think that here in the Southern Hemisphere in certain places like the Kimberley, whilst there was great upheaval here, and we can see that because the art epochs of the Goyon period just stopped, bang. They stopped painting humans forever after 12,800 years ago. So the Guion Guion, known as the Bradshaw art? Right, yeah. And, 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 and those, the, the, later, the later stages of that art, you can see this de-evolution in the art going and war, which then culminates with um, flood stories and cataclysm. And then eventually they go back to painting serpents plants and animals which they had not painted for at least six thousand years so so they, they they were affected here but they managed to hold on to the old ways greater than they did in the northern hemisphere is that what i'm hearing they were able to hold on to the old ways and they had a historical record of art jumba dance that is art dance and story which allowed them to be cohesive and still retain stories that were older than the younger drives forever it seems people have been racking their minds to figure out the root cause of the human condition to me it's blatantly obvious that there's some there is such a deep pathology within our species and it's a huge discussion as to what that is and where it comes from but i mean can you imagine a world if and when we finally crack the code and it may be many, many different puzzle pieces put together, but we finally figure out how we work and we get our hands on the kind of the control mechanism and we're able to heal that. So we're at least empty of shit and functioning properly. You know, just what the things that we could create as a collective and as a planet, I think is, you know, it's incredible sci-fi fantasy stuff. I uh, So to wheel back to your original question, which I digressed with uh, about our new project, uh, our new project is about, ultimately, it's about taking all of humanity, and that's why we want this to be a global film. We want we want a lot of people to see this film because we want to walk people by the hand back into their prehistory and have a look at uh, what it meant to be human then and how far we've digressed and what's right and what's wrong. Because ultimately in the last 11,600 years, every civilization that has ever been created has collapsed and yet the indigenous cultures have still persevered. So when Jesus Christ said, the meek shall inherit the earth, I'm pretty sure what he was saying was that the indigenous people inherit the earth because uh, they know how to survive through um, younger Dryas, whatever happened 42,000 years ago, whatever happened 4,200 years ago with the 4.2 KA event, all of these are well documented in the art history and in the stories and the songs, and they just have to sing their way through the song lines to understand how to survive through those things. And there's not many people outside of those societies that could. When you, when you don't have a book with writing, to get when you have an this is outsourcing knowledge. Uh, this is what I'm starting to come to the realization with. 
we, we outsource our knowledge. We've got it in books. We've now got it in our phones and computers and everything else. It's outside of us. Whereas in Indigenous culture, it was all in here. And as you get older, the songs that you learn as a kid uh, get uh, have added more and more layers to that song. Layer of meaning. Once you know those songs, then you're able to sing yourself around your estate from water point to water point and from, you know, and in between there's animals, you know, there's animals that you hunt and flowers and plant ceremonies and all of those sorts of things. But if you know where all your water points are through the springs, which is why they're so revered and we eventually we built pyramids and churches over the top of those springs, but it was about the springs and where the water came up. If you knew intimately where those water points were and where the animals were, you could survive. And so if you then go and uh, create a five-dimensional map, which is song, dance, art and story that is inside those uh, song lines, which are inside your mind, then you no longer outsource your information. It all comes back into here and you can do anything you like. So no longer are we then defined by the house that we live in or the area that we're in or the shirt or anything like that. You're, you're a completely different, you're a completely different being. Yeah. You've cultivated, you've cultivated your being to be everything you need. You haven't outsourced any of those mechanisms or applications. That's, that's exactly right. So, you know, what we think is a human being now is very, very different to what a human being was in Europe 12,800 years ago. So our definition of who and what we are um, also has to change. And uh, I don't know, and I think think that our, I don't like the word history because history is his story. It is uh, everything that's happened in the the Holocene. Um, And... Uh, and, I, and I don't trust it. Um, I think that the answers lay before uh, the Holocene when uh, the story is very, very different and it wasn't run so much by men as it was women. And I think when the responsibility of spirituality and being is left in the hands of women, then we are in far more safer hands than what we have now. And, and we can see it. We can see it everywhere. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. Mark Jones, that was awesome. You've actually you've given me a few extra leads to follow up. I'm going to leave you leave you to it now because it's getting wobbly on my end. The you're sounding okay. a little bit like um, a digital chipmunk every kind of ten seconds. Yeah, it gets pretty busy here in the other. Could you really quickly, mate? Could you just let people know where they can go to sniff out your work further? Uh, Yes, I just got invited by the State Library actually to archive all my stuff, which is a hell of an honour. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, everywhere. I've got stuff uh, everywhere. So um, the last big feature doco I was involved with, which was Undermined, uh, is on, I think it's on Netflix. Um, I've got... uh, uh, old Country, New Country is on YouTube. Serpent's Tale is just about to do film festivals and NITV, SBS. The new project, Stories in Stone, will it's looking, hopefully, fingers crossed, it looks like it's going to be ABC here in Australia and have a global release. So I do stories that are small and for 
Aboriginal PVCs just up the road and I'm also involved in big stuff. So it's yeah, kind of scattered okay. everywhere. I, I, for those listening, I was lucky enough to have a look at the teaser trailer for uh, Stories in Stone and it was so far up my alley, I nearly shat myself. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one, mate. It looks really good. Yeah, well, um, thankfully the broadcasters and the agents and everybody else are excited. I think it's time. Yep. I think it's time for shit like this. And and I think since Peru, I think I realised that, you know, my job in this uh, on this mortal coil is to pump out stuff as I see it and take people back to the source. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, if that happens and we manage to protect a bit of country along the way, then I'll die with a smile on my face. Well said. Awesome. All right, Mark Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Good on you, mate. Thanks, mate. All right. Speak soon. See ya. Ta-da, mate. See ya.
Dream.